What an amazing poem, and boy, that music, hmm? they just married themselves together in the eyes of the Lord. Wow, what a great hymn. Let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Well, we're in the, um, the second half of the book. We've uh, done 50%. So tonight we're going to do uh, chapter 5, and then it's just uh, chapter 6, 7, 8, and uh, it's done. I hope you're enjoying this interesting book. It's, uh, it's very interesting, isn't it? And when you have some idea, maybe, as to uh, what the author is getting at, it really opens up pretty nice. There we are. Chapter 5. All right, folks, let's take it to the Lord in prayer. Loving Father, once again, we ask that you would please undertake for us. Lord, our hearts are hungry to hear from heaven. Please feed us here with the manna of the word of God. We pray that this chapter here would perhaps uh, spark uh, an idea or two in hearts tonight. We pray that the word of God would... Um, develop in us a greater love for Jesus. And um, Lord, show us how we can improve. Once again, we pray that you would please undertake for those that are not able to be with us tonight. And again, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to come before you in humility and in faith so as we may pray and intercede on behalf of others. So bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name, we ask, amen. Well, let's see here. We've got for you a uh, outline. So we're going to begin here, chapter 5, and the, um, um, the one speaking is, uh, uh, is Solomon, but um, you remember that there appears to be a greater purpose to all this, and it appears to be uh, also, and maybe more properly, the love between God and his people. And so it's put in this wonderful story of Solomon and his bride. So we, we have uh, Solomon speaking here, or perhaps God. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends. Drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. And so Solomon... Uh, if you'll remember, in chapter 4, verse 16, it finished off with his bride, and his bride was inviting him to physical intimacy. Now, this is in the context of marriage. These days, uh, that's not how it happens. The two of them meet in a bar, or they, they meet in a party, or maybe even in the office. And then uh, the next thing you know, they're shacked up together. And that's so common today. And it's uh, portrayed for us all the time in the sitcoms. And it's portrayed all the time in the Hollywood movies. And it's even portrayed in real life before us. And so it's very, very common for someone to say, I'm saving myself for marriage. They're looked upon as a clown, a fool, as a, um, an idiot, perhaps. And uh, marriage is um, uh, not what it used to be. Isn't that right? It, um, 
the, the holy bonds of, of matrimony are a joke in many people's eyes. And that's sad, but um, uh, that's the way the world is going. My guess is that that's the way it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because according to our Lord Jesus, as we come to the end, the days of Sodom and Gomorrah will be upon us and are upon us again. Um, anyhow, Solomon in verse 1, chapter 5, now accepts her offered intimacy, the intimacy of her virginity. Notice again, I am come into my garden. We made mention of this, that uh, she was like an enclosed garden. She kept herself chaste and pure. And it's uh, still something very precious in the eyes of God. And I believe in the eyes of, uh, of men as well. Uh, a woman that will keep herself, not give in to pressure, but keep herself pure for her marriage. And so she is offering now to Solomon. And now in verse 1, he accepts. And here for the first time, the garden is opened. Um, this is proper physical intimacy after marriage. Now, I want you to notice the luxurious um, terminology that he uses here of myrrh and spice and honeycomb and honey and wine and milk. And it has to do with that, um, uh, that, that, that description of the intimacy. Her garden is now his garden. Now keep your finger there, please, in Song of Solomon. Go to the New Testament, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. We're not going to do a lot of jumping around the Bible tonight, but I do want you to see this one. 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7. Um, let's read verse 4 out loud together. Here we go. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Now we've taught that principle in um, our marriage seminars for years now. And the truth is that um, uh, each owns the other. The husband owns the wife. The wife owns the, the husband in the bonds of matrimony. And here, in, if you go back to Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, this, this is the first time that the garden is open. Her garden is now his garden. And so we can see that principle right there of the ownership. Now, the other comments that he makes here to his friends may be as he leaves the wedding banquet. Uh, eat, oh my friends. Now, <clears throat> so far so good, right? Yes? Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, fasten your seatbelts because I think we're about to have our first ripple in the marriage. <laughs> Do ripples ever happen in marriages? Yes? No? How many think that it's possible for a married couple to have a little ripple in their relationship? Can I see your hand if you think it's possible? All right. If you do not think it's possible that they could ever have a ripple, put up your hand. How many aren't sure? You're not sure. No. Okay. Well, we didn't get all the hands raised there. But we come to uh, the second point, And now here the bride speaks. 
or in our case, this is going to be Israel or the people of God. Now, is the bride here is about to have a dreamlike experience from verse 2 right through to the end of this chapter. It's, it's a dreamlike experience. Some commentators think she's actually dreaming this. Uh, other commentators think that uh, she's sort of in that, that half awake, half asleep, you know, she's not, she's kind of dozy, whatever. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it's, it's uh, her recounting her own folly because we're about to get a ripple. Verses 2 and 3. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat, how shall I put it on? I have washed my feet, how shall I defile them? So in verses 2 and 3, it seems that she has this dream that Solomon comes home and she's locked him out. And Solomon asks her to open the door. And he uses loving words. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. He then goes on to describe his discomfort because of the moisture and that he's ready to come in. For my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. And verse 3, in response, the bride basically says she's not able to come and let him in. And she says, I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? Now, we are soon going to find out that she really does go and open the door. But the problem is... She went reluctantly. She ultimately went, but she just took too long. And so this we have what appears to be the first hiccup or the ripple in the marriage. Now, uh, I want to hasten to say, be careful about trying to make every little detail um, fit. It's like when Jesus told a parable the parable was designed to communicate one important truth. And it's, it's important that we don't try to um, make every single little detail mean something. There are details given, some details given, but we've got to go for the broader picture here. I remember when I was in Bible college, one of the professors said, when you're, when you're dealing with the parables, don't try to make them walk on all fours. <laughs> So what he was telling us is that, you know, be careful about the parables because some guys have really, you know, gone off, you know, the, the deep end with some of the details, speculating and reading things into Scripture. And so I've tried to remember that over the years. But uh, here, now, um, verse 4, we come to uh, Solomon. He says, and, and she says, this is, this is all her... Um, commentary. Uh, my beloved put, his, put in his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. So uh, at this point, Solomon would have rattled the latch on the door. And now at this point, she's moved inside. It, um, it was a bit of a mistake, I think, on her part. He came and called to her, open, open up, and he used very loving language. And uh, she wouldn't 
she was reluctant. Was she playing games? <laughs> Who knows? There are also some commentators that try to read uh, things into these verses that I think are a little on the dangerous side. They go overboard on the, the physical and the sensuality. So just bear that in mind. But um, it appears that at this point he even rattles the, uh, the latch somehow. Verse 5, now she goes to the door. I rose up to open to my beloved and my hands dropped with myrrh and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. And so in verse 5 here, she went to the door, albeit not quick enough. She delayed too long. Now that's, I want you to remember that. We're going to come back to that. It seems that uh, as she lay hold of the latch here in verse 5, that's when she noticed the sweet-smelling myrrh that was on it, left there by Solomon. Now, some commentators see this as Solomon's way of leaving her a love note. Some men would have been angry and pounded at the door like Fred Flintstone, but uh, Solomon was, was gentle with her and without anger he sort of left her this note by uh, depositing some of this sweet-smelling myrrh there on the latch. And so we come to verse 6, and she opens the door. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he, he spake. I, I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. And so Solomon, at this point, had left. He'd gone away. She didn't open when she should have. She just delayed. She gave him excuses. Finally, reluctantly, she goes to the door. And uh, there on the door latch, she finds the, uh, what he left, the sweet-smelling um, uh, myrrh. And uh, now in, uh, in uh, uh, verse 6, she opens the door. He's gone, can't be found. She feels terrible. She looks. She can't see him. She calls. Uh, he doesn't respond. She cannot find him. Now in verse 7, um, in her dream, she walks the city streets now looking for Solomon. The watchmen that went about the city found me. Look at this. They smote me. Now the mistreatment by the watchmen may be typical of how sometimes in a dream we experience fear and pain. We call those nightmares, don't we? And sometimes we uh, wake up and we're, we shake ourselves, wow, that, that was horrible. Huh, maybe we're breathing heavy, our heart's pounding. Maybe sometimes we wake up from a, a dream, a half-slash nightmare or something, and we can't believe that we said the things we said in the dream, that we did the things we did, and we know they were wrong and unethical, but we did them. And we can't believe that I actually dreamed that. Um, there are people who uh, try to interpret dreams. And I'm only taking a guess at this, but I think most of it's baloney. Most of the dream interpreters are pretty much baloney. They try to uh, write books and give seminars and put up websites and all these little different things. And if you, if you dream about a sheep, oh, it means this about you. If you dream about a goat, oh, it means this over here. 
If you dream that you're flying, oh, it means this about you. I don't buy that stuff. I think a lot of the dreaming is just kind of a, a flush, that that's God's way of having just a kind of flush of thoughts, feelings, emotions, and whatever. And maybe sometimes God uses it for other purpose. We know in the Bible that uh, Joseph was an interpreter of dreams. But how often did he do that, you see? It's only recorded there a couple of times of him having done that. Well, anyhow, in her dream, she walks about the city street. She's looking for Solomon. The watchmen come and mistreat her. And then watch here in verse 7. Uh, they, let's see. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. Now, we might not think much of that. But uh, you walk up to uh, one of the Muslim ladies who wear the veil, and you yank her veil off. And what kind of reaction do you think you're going to get? What do you think? You're just looking at me. <laughs> if she's got a gun, she's going to shoot you, right? Wow. She's not going to like that. You've, you've offended her. You've kind of betrayed her. You've exposed her. And uh, here, you know, the, um, uh, the wife here of Solomon, she had her veil. And the, uh, the watchman there, they took away her veil, and it was a serious thing for her in the dream. And it was a scary thing, exposing her face to these scary men in her dream. Now, verse 8, watch, she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem. Here she's about to plead with the daughters of Jerusalem. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick of love. Now, some people will interpret those words the wrong way. They'll, they'll think that what the lady is saying, I'm sick of love. I've had it. That, I'm up to here with it. That's it. I'm out of here. I'm checking out. I'm sick of the whole thing. I'm sick of love. That's not what she's saying. She's saying that her heart is sick. She is so in love with this fellow Solomon that, she, that she's offended him. He took off. He can't find her. She got, you know, assaulted. And she is just beside herself and probably coming unglued a little bit, maybe. And so here she pleads with the daughters of Jerusalem, say, where'd they come from? This is her dream. And in a dream, you know, weird things can happen. And so the daughters of Jerusalem, they, they come to her, and she pleads with them to convey her lovesick heart to Solomon. Now, I got a little note here. It almost seems that her sin sickness in how she treated him in refusing to open the door actually brought her to her senses and brought about the lovesickness in her heart for, once again, for her husband. Uh, I, I mentioned to you weeks ago that there are hundreds of books uh, on the Song of Solomon. And one famous author who loved the Song of Solomon and really compared it to Christ and the church was Old Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he wrote <laughs> reams of material on this. And here in this verse, Spurgeon compared this love sickness to a Christian's heart that says, it's the longing of a soul for the enjoyment of present fellowship with him who is her soul's life, her soul's all. It's a panting after spiritual communion. And so that's how he looked at it uh, in the Christian life. Well, now we get to verse 9. 
Now, remember, this is all within her dream, and she's conveying this, but now we have, there they are, the daughters of Jerusalem. Now the daughters of Jerusalem uh, respond back, and they say, What is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women! What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? And so the daughters ask her or maybe demand of her, what's so special about this guy? And their words, O thou fairest among women, really sound like sarcasm. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put it past the context of this dream because this dream is sort of a slash nightmare. And uh, she's getting kind of roughly treated by the watchmen. And now the words of the daughters of, uh, of Jerusalem. And so um, we get now to her response. So we're back to her for the remaining verses. And the bride, the Shulamite, now goes into an amazing, eloquent, detailed description of her husband, uh, Solomon, and his beauty. It was only just a chapter or two ago that Solomon launched into this phenomenal description of her, comparing her hair and comparing her teeth and her eyes and all these things. You remember that? We studied that. Now it's her turn, and she's kind of actually doing something similar. And so uh, she goes into great detail over his beauty. And we'll look at verse 10. She says, My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. So she describes his countenance as white and ruddy. And the idea here is a, a healthy complexion. And she speaks of him as better looking than 10,000 other guys. See that in verse 10? The chiefest among 10,000. Today, the ladies would say he's tall, dark, and handsome, and rich. So he's uh, quite the catch. He's quite the hunk. And this is going on in her dream. And remember, back up just a, a little bit here. He uh, uh, comes to her. Now, she's having a dream. He comes to her and says, open up, my fair lady. <laughs> I'm home. And she doesn't. She uh, stays in bed and has these excuses, and he rattles the latch. And then that's when hmm, she just feels, no, nah, I, better, I better open up. And so she makes her way to the door and puts her hand on the latch, and wow, it's got that beautiful, sweet-smelling myrrh. She opens up, and he's gone. And she can't see him. She can't hear him. She calls. She can't find him. So she goes wandering the streets. It's all in the dream. The watchmen find her, and they, they hit her. And uh, then they take away her veil, and she's traumatized by this. And then uh, there's the daughters of Jerusalem all of a sudden appear on the streets. And then she charges them, if you find him, tell him that I, I love him so much. I'm just sick of love. And then they say, oh, yeah? Well, what's this guy to you? Why is he so special? Well... Let me tell you. And it seems that this miserable experience has kind of brought her to her senses because now she launches into this amazing description. And we'll look at it here. We'll walk through it. Now, you count the number of things that she talks about here. 
Okay? Verse 11. His head, I'll give you a hint, that's number one. Okay? His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters washed with milk and fitly set. Ladies, have you ever said that to your husband? That's, that's choice. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Uh, verse 13. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with beryl, with the beryl. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. How many did you count? How many? Ten, that's right. So she goes through this description here. And she finishes by saying, He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And so when they kind of impudently say, Oh yeah, what is this guy to you? Why is he so, so wonderful? And boy, she doesn't keep anything back, does she? Now the real love and the purity and the heart really come out. And she just blows them out, out the door, blows them down the street with this incredible description of her man. Absolutely incredible. Well, she is absolutely sure without any doubt whatsoever of her love and her admiration for Solomon. Now, the conclusion here. Um, how many uh, items did you count again? in her description of him? Ten. If, if we were to take the time and go to the book of Revelation in chapter 1, we have John, the Apostle John, on the Isle of Patmos, and he has a vision of Jesus Christ. And he begins to describe Jesus Christ and his eyes and uh, the glow and everything about him. You'll find there are ten items John gives a tenfold description of Jesus Christ in Revelation. Here, the bride gives a tenfold description of Solomon. And there's an interesting comparison there, particularly when we think that the book of Solomon goes further beyond just the love between a husband and wife to the love between God and his people. And so, if we can use this analogy up here, Israel now is giving a description of God. And it's this tenfold. And over in Revelation, you have a similar tenfold description of Jesus. And more than once, Jesus has been called altogether lovely. More than once, he's been called the lover of my soul. Now, in her folly, the bride failed her husband. The bride locked Solomon out. In Revelation chapter 3, you come to a church, a letter to a church 
called Laodicea. And what had the church done to Jesus in chapter 3, verse 20? You can speak to me. Look it up if you don't know. I, I just hear murmuring. I can't hear. Say it loud. A little louder. Did you hear him? Stand up and say it as loud as you can. Did you all hear that? Did you hear that? They locked out Jesus. The church locked Jesus out. Imagine that. Well, what have we got here in chapter 5? What did the bride do? She locked her husband out. Well, the door was locked, and she didn't run to, uh, to open it. Basically, she just dragged her feet, and she made excuses. Isn't that sad? And it's sad when uh, a church shuts out Jesus. You say, does that really happen? It sure does, folks. A church of even uh, saved people can get into a routine, and it's no longer an experience, you know, with Jesus. It's just church, just a churchy religious experience. Just like how a husband and wife can be uh, um, emotionally, romantically involved with each other for the first couple of years, and then slowly they begin to drift. And maybe the children come, and um, they just go through the motions. They're no longer romantically involved with each other. Now it's just business as usual. And that happens in married couples, and it happens in churches, <clears throat> where Christians come to church, pastors come to church, deacons come to church, and we all act churchy. And we go through the formalities. And we sing hymns, and we preach sermons, and it's very formal. And it's as if Jesus has been locked out. He can't come in. It's only an analogy I'm making here. I know there are other churches that really boot them. Not, they don't just lock them. They boot them down the road. I know that there are churches like that. But we won't talk so much about them. What folly, what folly is ours when we fail to open the door to Jesus each morning and meet with our beloved in prayer? How about that? When we get so busy that we leave them outside and we say, that's okay, I'll catch up with you at lunchtime, Jesus, but we don't. Uh, that's all right, I'll get you tonight, but we don't. Well, I tell you what, Jesus, I'll spend twice as much time with you tomorrow, but we don't. And what folly when we, as it were, don't run to open the door first thing in the morning and let Jesus in. It's only an analogy. But I think, do you follow what I'm saying here? Hmm. Maybe we deserve to have terrifying experiences like the bride did. Maybe we deserve, maybe we need to have some terrifying dreams to shake us a bit and bring us to our senses so that we confess our love for him. Because that's what she did here. How much do you really love your beloved Savior? Good question, I think. Let's pray.